Now, several weeks ago, we read as our sermon passage, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, see, uh, see the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And in the next few passages, the intervening passages and corresponding sermons, we saw that one of the ways in which we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, and set our minds on those things that are above, not on things that are on earth, is to remember that we have died. We've died to the world. We've died to the flesh. We've died to the devil. We have died. We've died with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And therefore, we are to put to death what is earthly in us. Or to put it another way, we are to consider our earthly members dead to various passions and sins. And we are to put away our sinful behavior. But also, we are to put on the virtues of Christ. So so there's a putting off, a removal of of the filthy, sin-covered garments, and there's a putting on. There's a putting uh, on uh, the clothing of righteousness that Christ has given to us. But we've got to remember that, as verses 9 and 10 tell us, we have already put off the old self. And we have already put on the new self. Now, if you remember last week, it's the Spirit who does it, but we get the credit. God does the work in us, but He gives to us the credit. We've not done this by our own initiative. We've not done this by our own power. It's the Holy Spirit who has worked in us. And we saw that that part of not setting our minds on the things that are on earth is by considering ourselves dead to sin. The part of the ways in which we we refuse to, to contemplate the things, the sinful things of the earth, is to remind ourselves, I'm dead to that. Or it's dead to me. It's not a part of who I am any longer. Similarly, we set our minds on the things that are above by putting on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And then we put on forgiveness and love and peace. In other words, the way that you set your mind on the things that are above is by seeking to grow in these and other virtues of Christ. Just like realizing that love isn't how you feel. Instead, love is what you do. Love is a verb. Seeking the things that are above and setting our minds on those things, phrases which are virtually synonymous in the context of verse 1, does not involve sitting around in our study and imagining heaven. We're not contemplating our navels here. Even our navels as they might appear in heaven. We are to put those things into action. And so all of the virtues that Paul lists in verses 12 and 13 are actions that are to be taken in relation to other people. You are to employ your compassionate heart that you have put on by being compassionate to other human beings made in God's image. You are to behave toward other people in a way that is kind, humble, meek, patient. And so setting your mind on that which is above is not a pursuit best done in the ivory tower. It's done on the streets and in the marketplace and especially in the church. That is where you put into practice the mind of Christ. Now, as we work our way through this passage today, think about this. Hold this thought before you. In love, God chose you as His holy ones for the purpose of putting on an entirely new wardrobe fitting for those 
who have been made new in Christ. That was a bunch. I'll say it again more slowly. In love, God chose you as His holy ones for the purpose of putting on an entirely new wardrobe fitting for those who have been made new in Christ. The sermon today is a four-parter. The first part is Christ-like graces. The second, Christ-like responses. The third, Christ-like love. And the fourth, Christ-like peace. We'll get to the giving thanks there that's tacked on at the end of verse uh, 15. Uh, we'll get to that uh, next, or next time, Lord willing. So Christ-like graces, Christ-like responses, Christ-like love, Christ-like peace. Those are the four, four points of the sermon. We'll now turn our attention to the first, Christ-like graces. Paul tells the Colossians in verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, or could be translated there, gentleness, and patience. Now, he has just said in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, excuse me, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here, when he says that word here, he's talking about what? He's talking about the church. In the church, there's no division. We are one. It doesn't mean we're all the same. It doesn't mean we're all identical. But the divisions, those, those dividing walls that have been put up, the barriers that have put up, been put up for, for ages between peoples, between men and women, between ethnicities, between nationalities, those dividing walls are gone in the church. And so he's saying because you are in the church, you are therefore to put on the following Christ-like graces. Now in the, in the immediate context of our passage this morning, the motivation that we should have to put on these various graces and virtues that Paul is commend, commanding to us is that we are God's chosen ones. Now in November 1950, 8,000 U.S. service members, mostly U.S. Marines, struggled to survive the coldest North Korean winter in 100 years. They were surrounded by 120,000 Chinese soldiers. Their only lifeline was a 15-foot-wide steep mountain road they called the MSR, the Main Supply Route. It was a 78-mile journey, and the trip was made far more difficult by the massive enemy force that was surrounding it. The withdrawal from the Chosin Reservoir to the Sea of Japan was the longest in American military history and it would take 13 days and cost many lives. With their backs to the wall, the men of the 1st Marine Division pulled together to accomplish the impossible. Their teamwork cemented a band of brothers who who came to call themselves the Frozen Chosin. Now you know that I like to work stories in about the Marine Corps. At my sermon, any chance I get... And I have shoehorned this one in there, but I do so to contrast the warmth that so many people feel toward the Marines of the 1st Division who fought their way from the Chosin Reservoir all the way to the Sea of Japan. The warmth that they feel toward those with the coldness that so many Christians feel toward the word chosen and toward those who firmly believe in God's sovereign choice. And so there's a, there's a different group called the frozen chosen. And it's not meant as a compliment toward those who believe in God's sovereign grace as it pertains to his choice to save some from everlasting punishment for their sins. 
That view of Calvinists, that we are joyless scolds who love nothing more than to rain on other people's parades, stands in stark contrast to what Paul says we are to be in this passage. He says, because we are God's chosen ones, we must put on, not not frozen hearts, we are to put on, we must put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness or gentleness, and patience. It is precisely because we understand that we don't earn our salvation for ourselves, but that it is a gracious gift given to us despite our sinfulness that we ought to put on and practice all of those graces. We above all people ought to exhibit these graces because we ought to be overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has given to us despite our sinfulness. We ought to be overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has done for us, what He's done in us, what He's doing through us. We should be overwhelmed by these things. As we set our minds on heavenly things, as we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we are at the same time putting on compassionate hearts. We're putting on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I'm going to give you an example of how this is put into practice by a particular person, a very important person. In Mark's account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, he writes there, when he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without, shep- without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it, was, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he, that is Jesus, answered them, you give them something to eat. Now the disciples, if you remember that story, the disciples were trying to get, at at Jesus' command, at Jesus' own idea, they were trying to get some rest and recreation. They just returned after having been sent out for the first time as missionaries to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons. They'd been out for some unspecified amount of time. They come back and they're talking about all the things that the Lord did through them. They're, they're excited, but they're also exhausted. And the Lord tells them, we need to go get some rest. You need some rest. You need to eat. They had no time to do these things because they'd been so busy. And so he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, how many of you, when you're on vacation, like to have your rest interrupted? That's exactly what happened to Jesus and his disciples. But instead of being angry, instead of being short-tempered, irascible with them, Jesus, we read there, had compassion on these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark says that Jesus taught them he, he, he spoke words of revelation to these people. We don't know the content of that revelation, but he taught them. But he also fed them. His compassion for them resulted in the crowds of people receiving instruction from God himself. But also, care for their physical needs. And this is what Paul is telling you, you must do. He is telling you to have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are to consider others as being more important than ourselves. We are to put others first. 
when Jesus, rather than sending those 5,000 people away, which would have been the easy option, that's what the disciples wanted to do, send them off. It's, it sounds compassionate, but it's really not. He's sending them into villages, or that's what, that's what these disciples want uh, Jesus to do, send them into the villages. They're going to overrun the villages. The villages don't have enough food. It's the easy option. We are, as followers of Jesus Christ, to do the hard things, the difficult things. And so he told his disciples to feed them, knowing exactly what he was about to do. He showed his compassionate heart. He showed to his disciples and those 5,000 men and their wives and their children, he showed to them his kindness, his humility, his gentleness, his patience. Brothers and sisters, we are to practice these Christ-like graces, which, when summed up, are all about counting other people as more important than ourselves. And as we do this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can know that, that, that we, in our inner selves, the new creation we are in Christ, we are being renewed day by day, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We're being renewed. And this is the way we're being renewed. By showing these graces, by practicing these graces, by exhibiting these graces to other people. That brings us to the second point of the sermon, Christ-like responses. Paul continues his thought in verse 13 where he says, Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. How do you respond when other people criticize you? Or even less severe, how about when someone offers you unwanted but constructive criticism? How do you respond to that? I had an instance of a few years ago. It was, it was after we'd been embroiled in all of the mess down in Waco. That's just shorthand for all of the difficulties down there. Some of you know, some of you don't know. It's okay. Um, you don't need to know more than you know, probably. But there was a mess. And I, and I had a, a brother in the Lord. Um, he, he sent me a, a text, I think. He might have left me a voicemail. I'm not sure, but he sent it. Pastor Joe, I need, to, I need to talk to you about something. And because of all of the... The, the mess that we had been embroiled in, I, I, I was, I put my guard up and I was very worried and I was convinced that this brother was coming after me. And when we, we met to talk, he was going to let me have it. And I remember talking to another brother in the Lord, a fellow pastor, two, two of them actually, got together for lunch. And I told them about my anxieties about this. And this other pastor, he said, you know, he probably just has a concern that he wants to talk to you about. It's probably, it's, it's not as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. And when I had the chance to talk to the brother in our church, that was it. It wasn't, it wasn't criticism. It wasn't a complaint. It, it wasn't any of those things. He, he, just, he just had a personal concern he was bringing to me. Wanted the advice, wisdom, wisdom from this guy, wisdom from his pastor. But I was... I was scared. That's not what we're called to do. He wasn't even criticizing me, but I was ready for it, and I, I was apprehensive, and I was, I was ready to lash back out at him, to, to, to take, take it on the offensive. I jumped to the worst of all possible conclusions. Jesus, through Paul, is commanding us to bear with one another. And when someone brings a complaint, to, to hear that complaint out 
even if they're dead wrong about it, we're to hear them out and be patient with them and humble with them and meek and gentle with them and listen to them because maybe they are right and maybe we're dead wrong and maybe we've done something wrong. But because we live in a fallen world and we're interacting with other people, even people in the church and especially people in the church, there is going to be friction on occasion, maybe more often than occasionally. And so when you rub someone the wrong way and they raise a complaint, how is it that you react to it? Do you you react with grace? I, I can't say that I always do. Now this first word that Paul uses in verse 13 is translated bearing with. And it's related semantically with the last word in verse 12, patience. The words are not, they're not even related if you look at their roots. They're totally different words, but semantically they have overlapping meaning. And you can hear it, bear with someone, be patient with someone. And so Paul is continuing his thought from verse 12 and the preceding verses on into verse 13. But in verse 13 he's giving us now practical application. In reality, as Doug Moo writes in his commentary on this passage, Paul intends to present these actions in verse 13 as the natural outgrowth of the general attitude conveyed by all five virtues in verse 12 together. So, verse 12, we, got, we have the virtues, we have the graces. How do you exhibit these graces? Let, let's apply this to our lives practically, Paul is saying, by bearing with one another, by reacting graciously when someone complains to you about something you've done. Now that's just one example. Paul could have, been, could have given many, many more, but that's a common example in the church. He chose one, I think, that is especially challenging for us. How do you respond when someone raises an issue that they have with you? They might be misguided. They might be misunderstanding something that you've said or something that you have done. But they also may have a legitimate complaint. Regardless of what it is, you are to respond with humility and meekness and kindness. You, like Jesus, are to be gentle and lowly. Now this word, bearing with, according to Mu, indicates uh, a somewhat grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or people. However, he also points out that it's only in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 which is a, first, a very close parallel to our passage, and here in Colossians 3, that the word is presented positively. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We're not just simply to, to bear with each other begrudgingly. Oh, here he comes again. What am I going to do? No. We're we're to approach each interaction, even if it's a critique of us, we're to approach it in a positive way. We bear with each other in love. We bear with one another because we love each other. And so in the context of what Paul is saying, we don't just grudgingly bear with each other when one has a complaint. We are earnestly humble and gentle with each other. And our response in such a situation is to forgive each other. But Paul continues on. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is not an option for the person who has been forgiven much by the Lord. And every believer has been forgiven much. You remember the woman who is described in Luke chapter 7 verse 37 as a woman of the city. A sinner. It's probably 
somewhat of, a, of, a, of an abstract pejorative term. And this woman came into a Pharisee's house where Jesus and his disciples were meeting. And this woman, she came in and she broke out her alabaster flask of ointment. She, she broke off the top. She poured out the ointment. She was weeping. And her tears were dripping on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee was indignant. And he said, he thought, Jesus knew his thoughts, but he thought, oh, this man allows this woman to come into my house and to do this thing to him. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts of that Pharisee, he rebuked him. And he said, when I came into your house, you offered me no oil for my head. You gave me no kiss on my cheek. You showed me no honor. But this woman, this woman who has been forgiven much, she loves much. This woman who knew without anyone having to tell her, without anyone having to sneeringly call her a woman of the city, a sinner, she knew what her sins were. And she knew that the Lord had forgiven her. That she was grateful. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we are that woman. Or we're the Pharisee. It's your choice. Which do you want to be? <laughs> if you believe you're that woman, then you understand humility and kindness. You understand the grace of Christ. You understand that you have been forgiven much and you are to forgive as you have been forgiven. For the follower of Jesus Christ, it's not an option. It's not an option. It's what we are called to do. And so if we too understand how much we have been forgiven, we will be quick to forgive others because we will understand what it means to be forgiven by the Lord. That brings us to the third point of the sermon, Christ-like love. In verse 14, Paul writes, And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, we're thinking about garments here, right? We're putting on these virtues. We're, we're, putting, we're, putting on, uh, uh, we're bearing with one another patiently. We're putting these things on like, like garments. And above all of these things, not, not above all necessarily as, as the highest priority, but, but outside of these things, on top of all of these things, you are to put on love. And some have described that as, as something like a belt. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson, about this passage, he writes, Paul is saying, clothe yourself in grace attire that suits who you are in Christ. In order, that you, in order to do that, I'm sorry, in order to do that, everything needs to be held together. All of your gifts, all of your graces, all of your talents, all of your energies with the belt of love. It's the belt of love that ties this outfit that you're putting on together. God has given you all of these gifts, all of these articles of clothing, a compassionate heart, kindness, meekness, patience, humility, and on top of that, you are to put on love. It's love that holds all of these things together. Now let's consider one of these graces, patience. Let's consider it without love for a moment. It's possible 
It's entirely possible. You, you know unbelieving pagans who have more patience than most Christians. I, I guarantee that you do. It's possible to pursue patience out of a philosophical desire to remain unmoved in the face of extreme challenges. That's what the Stoics did. That's what they still do. There's still Stoics around. It's actually growing in popularity. But Christianity is not Stoicism. A modern-day Stoic philosopher defines Stoicism this way. It is an ascetic system, meaning we don't don't seek out comforts in life. It's an ascetic, kind of a harsh, a a tough system, teaching perfect indifference. The Greek word behind that is apatheia. Have you ever heard of that word, apathy? Perfect indifference to everything external, for nothing external could be either good or evil. Hence, to the Stoics, both pain, on the one hand, And pleasure, on the other, poverty and riches, sickness and health were supposed supposed to be equally unimportant. Does that sound like Christianity to you? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Was he indifferent to the physical hardships of other people? And so without love for others, the highest form of patience that a person could achieve is a stoic indifference. But that isn't the Christian virtue of patience, because Christian patience is covered in love. As I said, Stoicism is enjoying a bit of a revival in our day. I I, I follow an author who is is very much a Stoic, and she writes from a a standpoint of of Stoicism. She she commends its virtues. I don't read her because I believe uh, what she says or agree with what she says, but I do find uh, it important and interesting to keep up with her viewpoints on things. I think it's enjoying a bit of a revival in our day, in part because people are being so emotionally manipulated by every form of media that's out there. And so they're finding refuge in a philosophy that prioritizes logic and a Spock-like indifference to external forces. We are being battered and pushed about by all kinds of things around us. If you're at all aware of what's taking place in the wider world, and we probably ought to be, even if that's just turning on the nightly news at 5.30 and seeing what's going on, you are being emotionally manipulated. You are. And many people's response is to take refuge in this form of indifference that is almost inhuman, hence the reference to Spock. But followers of Christ can be no more indifferent to what is going on around us than Jesus was. And it is love, the kind of love that God has for his world, that we too are to put on. And this, at least in part, is how we don't lose hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16 and following, So we, don't, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As we set our minds on the things that are above, as we remember that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we take on a different perspective about what is going on in the world around us. We're not indifferent to it, but we have a heavenly mindset about it. It's not that the world becomes less real like we're living in some sort of simulation, like the Matrix or something, but we are reminded of ultimate things, eternal things. And love is eternal. And so we look upon the suffering of fellow human beings, fellow image bearers, with compassionate hearts, with with loving hearts. Our sinfulness and the sins of others against us are only momentary afflictions. 
we won't be burdened by them much longer. But love lasts forever. That brings us to the the fourth and the final point of this morning, Christ-like peace. And finally, for today's sermon at least, we are to have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We'll we'll pick up where we left off uh, in a couple of weeks. We who are one body have been called to peace, Paul says in verse 15. And as Ferguson writes, we are called to peace. It's not an added extra. It's not an elective subject for us. It is a summons. It's a required course. Just as you receive a summons uh, to be a, a, a witness in a trial, or if you are summoned to jury duty, you can't skip out on it. It's non-negotiable. You have to at least... You have to at least respond and say the reason why you're not a great candidate to be on the jury that time. But you can't just simply throw the summons in the trash and go on about your day. You will be sought sought out. And so we, the church, are to do that which maintains the peace and the purity of the church. Now that does not mean that we can sacrifice the purity of the church for the peace and the unity of the church. We've tried, that's been tried before. It does not work out well for the church. We, we, in other words, we can't be like Chamberlain and say we've achieved peace for our time when in reality the thing that we signed was enabling the Nazis to go on and invade all of the countries that they wanted to invade. We can't do that. We can't simply have peace for peace's sake. When we sacrifice theological purity for the sake of minimizing differences, there comes a point when we will cease to be the true church. However, we also cannot sacrifice the peace of the church for the purity of the church. These two things are not pitted uh, against one another. They go hand in hand with each other. Purity and peace. Now the PCA has as their fifth membership vow this question. Do you submit yourselves to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace. Now, I deeply love the OPC's membership vows. I think they've only gotten better in the last 15 to 20 years. And much of the time that Jen and I worshipped, sorry, I was a member of the PCA, became a member back in 2002. And since that time, I've had an appreciation for the fifth vow in their membership vows. I only sojourned in the PCA for about five years. Much of that time, Jen and I worshipped at an OP church in Pennsylvania. But I've often thought about what it means to study, to be a student of the purity and the peace of the church. And I think there's great value in thinking of it in those terms. We are to be studious in our pursuit of the peace of the church. We are to be diligent in our study of it. In other words, peace in the church does not come about passively. It comes through effort. It doesn't come about by avoiding conflict, but by dealing with conflict in a non-destructive way. We have peace in our church by listening to one another when our differences with one another are aired. But our differences with one another have to be aired in a non-destructive way. In other words, when we have an issue with someone, We must speak the truth in love. We must not wield the truth like a battle axe. One commentator writes, The peace which is to characterize the church is not to be a mere outward absence of hostility. It is to be the peace of Christ, which must become the deciding factor. The Greek word for rule probably has the overtone of someone acting as an umpire or an arbitrator. 
It's the deciding factor in your hearts. Whatever disagreements or mutual suspicions occur in the church, they are to be dealt with at the deepest level by all parties, allowing the fact of their unity in Christ to settle the issue in their hearts. The Pax Christiana is to prevail in the church as the Pax Romana did in the world of Paul's day, allowing its inhabitants to pursue their respective callings without the the constant threat of war. When the church is in constant war with itself, it's got no time, it's got no energy, it has no inclination to carry out its call from Jesus to make disciples. We're too busy battling against each other, duking it out. It's the Christian version of Fight Club. And the church is not called to it. In the church, peace comes about by doing the hard work of knowing and loving one another of not getting angry or taking our ball and going home when things don't go our way, but trying to work through issues with each other whenever they arise. Now, you know this, brothers and sisters. Maybe the, maybe the younger ones among us don't quite know this now, but they'll know it if they stay in the church, if they persevere in the church. But those of you who've been around a while, you know it. There is no such thing as a perfectly peaceful church. There isn't. There's never going to be perfect peace in the church in this life just like none of the virtues and the graces that Paul mentions in this passage will ever be perfectly exhibited in the church here on earth why because none of us here none of you and not me not not one of us is perfect and every time we walk through the doors of this building this church building we bring with us with us all of those issues and when we meet together we spend a little time together we can rub each other the wrong way And so Paul is very concerned with how we handle that, how we work through those issues. Because you see, God is preparing for us a house, a church, if you will, that is not made with human hands, which is eternal in the heavens. And any conflicts we have in the church in this life will make us groan as long as we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. However, you have been made new now. You already are in Christ. These commands that Paul has given you in this passage this morning, he's given they're not impossible for you. Because you've also been given the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you. And so, brothers and sisters, wear these virtues and these graces like a garment. A garment that is fitting for heaven. Because that is where you and I will be one day. And that is good news.